Well, we're going to be in, um, if you have your Bibles, Philippians chapter 3. And we're going to start in around verse 10 or so. But to start with, I want to remind you, uh, maybe some of you weren't here then, but Jeff and I were. October 1st, 1975, it witnessed the third and final boxing match between two legendary heavyweight boxers, Smokin' Joe Frazier and Muhammad the Greatest Ali. The fight took place in the Philippines. It was dubbed the Thriller in Manila. It was dubbed that after sort of ripping off one of the quotes of Ali leading up to the fight in which he said, mocking Joe Frazier, boasting that the fight would be a killer and a thriller and a chiller in Manila. Ali won the fight. After the 14th round, this had been their, like I said, their third fight, and it was advertised as the fight of the century because each fighter had won one of the first two fights. Ali won one, Frazier won one, now this was their third and final deciding round to see who would be the world's greatest. The fight went 14 rounds. And for a heavyweight fat fight, that's a long time because these guys can hit like a freight train. Just take, I, and none of us could take a punch from either one of those guys. We would not live to be able to talk about it. It went 14 rounds, and finally, uh, Frazier's corner, looking at Smoke and Joe, realized that he could no longer see. He had been hit so many times in the face that his eyes were swollen shut. He couldn't see anymore. And despite his protests, his corner declared that he was done. And that was the end of the fight. But what the Frazier team did not know was that at the same time, Muhammad Ali was asking his trainer to cut off his gloves because he, because he was done. He couldn't fight anymore. And his trainer took no notice, no action. Ali later told his biographer, Frazier quit just before I did. I didn't think I could fight anymore. And by all accounts, this was a brutal fight in sweltering heat. You can see it online if you want to. It is a brutal fight. Surrounded by all kinds of political accusations and relational drama, the two fighters really hated each other. But the only thing most people remember about the thriller in Manila was that Ali won. And his victory set the tone for the rest of these two men's lives. It's amazing to think that the outcome of this historic fight may have simply come down to who quit first or who quit last, perhaps measured in just mere seconds. So Paul's letter to the Christians at Philippi 
is a famously encouraging letter. Some people refer to it as the joy letter. But it's a letter of encouragement to a church that's struggling. And it's kind of unusual in the way because of the origin of the letter. Paul's in prison for preaching the gospel. And yet he's rejoicing and encouraging his brothers and sisters in Philippi to do the same. Furthermore, he's encouraging his readers to rejoice, us, his readers, to rejoice, even though they're experiencing persecution for their faith. Circumstances we might think would cripple Paul. He's been arrested. He's in prison. We would think, gosh, Paul, anxiety, but not. He's rejoicing. He's writing this letter from prison, and he's rejoicing and encouraging his readers to do the same. He has this sustaining joy in the midst of all of these setbacks. In the famous boxing match, the, in the Thrilla in Manila, both fighters were stretched to their limit. Ultimately, Ali didn't win by knockout, but simply by being the last one to quit. And those in his corner essentially willed him to press on just long enough to get the decision. And in the same way, in the second half of Philippians chapter 3, Paul is urging the Philippians to press on. He has just declared the powerful impact that his changed life has had on his own life. Remember, well, we'll get to that. So let's take a look here. Let's take a look at the first uh, five verses or so, um, starting in uh, verse 10 of chapter 3. He says, Paul writes, and he's describing kind of what his attitude is now, that he has uh, Come to know the Lord. He says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. And then he goes on to write, not that I have already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So Paul is writing about his own spiritual journey to press on. And behind this confession or testimony is the intended encouragement to encourage the Philippians to do the same, to press on, to persevere, through their own difficulties and their own persecution. 
I've got a couple of questions for Paul. And you should ask questions when you're reading scripture. You should stop. Don't take everything always at face value. Stop and ask questions. The Hebrew writers of the Bible want you to wrestle with what's here. They want you to ask questions. They want you to drill down and ask tough questions. And so I have a couple questions. The first one for Paul is why? Why should I press on? When so many people are looking back and giving up, why should I press on? And I have another question. And the other one is, if I press on, for how long? How long should I press on? How long do we press on, Paul? When life gets hard, and to be specific, when trusting Jesus Christ gets hard, why should I press on? And for how much longer? These two questions are as relevant for us today as they were to the Philippian believers back in the first century. So what does Paul have to say? Paul tells us what motivates him to press on with faith in the face of stiff opposition. He writes, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Verse 13 again, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it yet. But one thing I do, one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I mean, it's interesting, the phrase that Paul uses two times here in this passage is translated press on. And that word means to pursue, to run after, to run swiftly in order to catch someone. So the metaphor that Paul is using for the kind of movement that he's talking about here is not a slow jog or a a fast walk. He's He's not sort of taking a stroll in the park. He's describing here, with the words that he chooses, he's describing a fierce chase. It's the image of a runner pursuing another runner in order to catch her in the final lap and snatch victory. I want you to imagine the Olympic Games and maybe the kind of 400-meter uh, relay race or the or the you know or the hundred meter dash, or some of the some of the real sprint races the the hundred the two hundred the four hundred those races that really require speed and stamina and that kind of grit and determination. We're not looking at a, at the marathon here, where these runners you know run for a, a you know a couple of hours sort of sort of pacing themselves. That's not what Paul is referring to here. He's referring to a race that is this fierce, all-out, 
you know, stretch for the goal, to lean forward at the tape to snatch victory away. That's the picture Paul has in mind. And I want you to note that Paul isn't saying that he's pursuing his own dreams here or his own plans or his own goals. That's not what he has in mind. On the contrary, he says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. In other words, Paul is pursuing something. He's running after something. But that's because Jesus first pursued and ran after Paul. In the 5th century, the Christian leader Theodoret paraphrased Paul's words here in Philippians like this. I'm trying to catch something in my net, but it was Jesus who first caught me in his net. And then Theodoret continues, paraphrasing Paul, and he says, I was fleeing him and was turned well away. He caught me as I fled. But now I am in, I in turn am the pursuer in my desire of catching him, that I may not be a disappointment to his saving work. Paul is pressing on. He's pursuing Jesus after Jesus had pursued him. He wants to capture Jesus, to know him intimately, to get a hold of him in such a way, in the same way that God got a hold of him. So to my first question to Paul, why? Why should I prance on? Paul answers, to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of him. In other words, remember that Jesus caught you I want you to take a second, just a split second here to remember when Jesus caught you. Remember that? Maybe you grew up in the church and it was a slow awakening, but there was probably a moment when you said to yourself, you know, I, I'm a Christian now. I, I believe. I've, I've given my life. I've surrendered. I've, he's, he, has, he has me now. And for others of you, it may have been a, more of a crisis moment. You'd been running, really running from him. Weren't looking for him at all. That's my story. I wasn't looking for God, wasn't pursuing him, wasn't interested, wasn't connected to any church of, of any kind. And on a backpacking trip in the high Sierras, Jesus hunted me down and captured me. And nothing has been the same since. Remember when he caught you. Remember that moment. Because he caught you for a reason. Take hold of that reason and let that reason motivate you to press on when times are tough and life is challenging. Remember that he caught you and remember the reason for which he caught you. Paul is saying, I used to persecute the church. I used to hunt Christians down. Stephen was the, it was under, under Paul's authority that the first Christian martyr, Stephen, was stoned to death. It was Paul who kind of made that situation happen. 
He, he despised Christians and the church and was on his way to Damascus with letters of introduction to persecute more Christians when God captured him. He was on his way to do more damage to the church, and Jesus took hold of him. He pursued and overcame Paul. Jesus saved Paul. And Paul is saying, he saved me for a purpose, and I am not going to quit. I'm going to press on so that I might fulfill that purpose for which God captured me. So why, Paul? Why should we press on? Paul says, to take hold of that purpose for which Christ took hold of us. Paul is determined to experience everything Jesus had in mind for him. Jesus chased Paul down for a reason. And Paul is resolved to honor that reason. He would not stop until that purpose was known and that that reason was utterly fulfilled. William Barclay, famous 20th century uh, Bible teacher, wrote these words. Paul felt that when Christ stopped him on the road to Damascus, he had a vision and a purpose for Paul. And Paul felt that all his life he was bound to press on, lest he fail Jesus and frustrate his dream. Every man is grasped by Christ for a purpose, for some purpose, and therefore every man should all his life press on so that he may grasp that purpose for which Christ grasped him. So Paul's answer to us today is to press on, take hold of God's vision and purpose for your life. My second question was, okay, so if I decide to press on, how long am I supposed to do that? How long do I keep pressing on? You know, nobody tells the runner to, uh, at the beginning, to press on at the beginning of the race, right? Everybody's, yay, the gun fires or starting, uh, the race begins. But when does the runner begin to hear the words press on? It's when they're ready to quit, right? When it's hard. And when it's been hard for a while, marathoners talk about the wall. I've never run a marathon. I will never run a marathon. You couldn't get me out of bed to even go look at a marathon. But marathon runners talk about the wall. There is a, there's a moment in that long, grueling race of endurance they call the wall where you just want to quit. You're exhausted. You've got nothing left. And runners talk about pressing in to that spot where you get through the wall. And then there's this euphoria, this runner's high that carries them for the rest of the race. It's kind of an amazing thing. I've never experienced it. Um, before I knew Christ, I experienced something like that artificially. But uh, that's, uh, that's a little different. Um, that's more, uh, well, let's not talk about that now. 
So you hear press on, and Paul tells us to press on when we're hurting, when we're tired, when we don't want to continue, when, we're, when we feel like we're done. We've paid high, a high enough price. And we begin to justify quitting, giving up. That's when we want to hear, and that's when we need to hear. Don't quit. Don't quit now. Press on. Following Jesus in Philippi, Philippi was hard for a long time. I imagine some of those folks were asking, Paul, come on, how long are we supposed to keep going? And Paul's answer is, press on to the very end. To the very end. Well, wait a minute, Paul. You're in jail for the gospel. You're all locked up. Travel is over for you. Your church planting days are over. But Paul says, no, it's not over yet. It's hard. It looks bad. But this is not the very end. I'm not done. I haven't taken hold of God's full purpose for my life yet. In verse 13, he says, but one thing I do, one thing I do, I forget, forget what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Paul's words here evoke a kind of powerful image. So let's shift from the thrill in Manila, the boxing illustration, to Paul's running analogy. The phrase translated, straining toward what is ahead. It has its roots in the image of a runner leaning toward the tape. What do sprinters, what are they thinking about? What is Usain Bolt, guy who holds the world record for the 100-meter dash, what's he thinking about when he's running? Is he thinking about the great start? Ah, oh, that was a great start. Or maybe all the races that he's won in his, in his career. I'm, I'm, the great, I'm the greatest sprinter, the fastest man alive. No, he's not. He's not thinking about last year's victories. Just one thing he's thinking about. He's thinking about the tape at the, end of the, at the finish line. He is straining to get there before everybody else. That victorious finish. The image that Paul calls to mind is the image of going flat out for the finish, giving it everything you have. Paul is reaching out. He's stretching out. He's leaning forward for what's ahead. We might be surprised that Paul isn't saying something like, I've had a good run. I planted a bunch of churches was shipwrecked a time or two, been arrested and beaten up countless times, lost some friends. I had lots of cold nights and hungry days. I've written some good letters. I'm quite the turnaround story. I guess my job's done. That's not his attitude at all. Paul is not reliving the glory days as though he's all washed up. He just says, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which Christ has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. How long do we press on, Paul? How long do we keep at this? 
till the very end. When is the very end? You'll know. If you're still breathing, you're not there yet. Furthermore, there's no retirement from God's call on your life. You press on. How long? To the very end. You strain ahead all the way to the finish line. And where's the finish line? At the very end. Now, Paul offers some, some practical advice, um, some wisdom on how. I remember when I was a young Christian, I would sit in church on Sunday morning with my Bible. And I always used to mark my Bible up. I have friends who hate to mark their Bibles up, but I always mark my Bible. I, all my books are all marked up. But I used to have a little, a little code that I would write in the margin of my Bible when I would hear preachers talk, when I was confused, when I had those questions. It was always, I would always write in the margin, Y-B-H. Yes, but how? I hear what you're saying, but how do you do that? I agree with you, but, but how do you do what you're asking me to do? And Paul's great that way because he's helping us. And so he answers the how question right now. Starting in verse 15, he says, All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, well, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For, I, for as often as I told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you who I love and long for, my joy, my crown, Stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. In this passage, he answers the how question. Paul's first word of instruction is in verse 17, which is simply, do what I do. Watch me. I'll show you how to follow Jesus. And it's remarkable. This is not the only time that, Jesus, or that Paul said this in, uh, in Corinthians. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Jesus says, follow me as I follow Christ. He's setting himself up. He says, you want to know how? Well, you just do what I do. Follow me 
as I follow Christ. If you do what I do, you'll be in good shape. Lots of people urge us to do what they say, but they won't. But Paul invites us to do what he does. So this is lived out discipleship. This is really where the rubber meets the road. This is the real how. This is not just a classroom experience or listening to a theological theory in the classroom or on Sunday morning. There, this is a true masterclass Paul is giving us here. He says, imitate me. Classic apprenticeship. True discipleship. Do what Paul does. And Paul includes, then he, then he includes an accommodation for those who are not, like, not quite so sure or want to kind of argue and, and kind of push back, which is me. That's always, I've always sort of kind of pushed back. You know, I mentioned Jeff's sort of reluctance to respond to God's call to the ministry. Well, I, I was able to recognize that. You know, in the program of recovery, they say, if you spot it, you got it. Uh, I spotted it because I had it. I held God at arm's length for two years after he called me to the ministry. I was scared to death. I just said, talk to, talk to the hand, you know. So Paul is providing an accommodation here for those of us who push back. And if on some point you think differently, if you're pushing back, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. He says, you don't have to really quite agree with me on every detail. I mean, that's, that's cool. But he says, God will show you when you're ready. You can't quite receive this right now. That's all right. God will show you a little bit later. Just hang in there. But then he, res he resists any excuse for any kind of uh, lax devotion. He says, but what you, have all, what you have clarity on, okay, then live up to that. What you already know to be the truth, then live up to that at least. You believe that Jesus is the Lord? Live like it. Are you clear on the basic idea that life is a gift from God? Then live like it. Have you reached the place in your spiritual development where you know that God is love? Okay, live up to what you have already attained. So Paul's first word of instruction was simply, follow me, I'll show you what pressing on looks like. Then secondly, Paul's word of instruction is essentially, don't waste your time on stuff that doesn't ultimately matter. Where does he say that? In verse 19. Look at verse 19. He says, listen, there are lots of people who are living and working for what doesn't really matter. These efforts are destined for destruction. They don't last these people are living for instant gratification. They're doing what feels good. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. It's one thing to do something you're ashamed of and feel embarrassed about it. But some of these people are doing shameful things and broadcasting them. 
They're posting them online, trying to draw attention to their shameful behaviors. Paul's second word of instruction stands in contrast to that approach. Paul's instruction uh, is to invest your life in what matters, in what lasts. Verse 20, he writes, but our citizenship, he reminds us, our citizenship is in heaven. Who is Paul writing this letter to? He's writing to the Christians in Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony well outside of Italy and Rome, a place where Roman citizenship was a, was a really big deal and shaped every element of the way people lived their lives there. With, with this kind of citizenship came uh, privilege. And I want you to remember that Paul was a Roman citizen by birth. Paul is saying it's not about Ro- the Roman Empire. It's not about Roman citizenship. He says those things don't last forever. If he were speaking to us today, Paul would say, wake up. It's not about the American experiment. The American experiment will not last forever. It has a beginning and it will have an end. It's not about that. Invest your life in things that will last, things that matter, things that are eternal. Our citizenship is in another realm that existed before Rome or America, and it will exist long after Rome and America falls. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, our Lord Jesus Christ. We eagerly await, we actively and anticipate his coming. We groan inwardly. It's like, how long? When are you coming? So what's Paul's main point here? First, it's press on. He doesn't want us to get distracted by temporal stuff, by stuff that that won't last, that doesn't matter. He wants us to live our lives for the stuff that's eternal. Press on. Don't don't be deceived into prioritizing your personal comfort over your commitment to Jesus. Press on. Keep working with, with Christ for the mission of Christ, for the restoration of all things. Press on. If you feel like quitting, remember that we have a Savior, and he's, he's on his way. We don't know when, but he's on his way. Don't give up. Eagerly await his coming. By the power of the resurrection, he will pull all things under his control, all the brokenness and the conflict and the disease and the oppression and the dishonesty and the lies and the conspiracies, and by that same power, he will utterly transform us and the world. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul urges his brothers and sisters to press on. Do not give up. Why? In order to take hold of God's purpose for their life. How long? To the very end. Even if you're old, even if you're sick, even if you're locked up in prison, it's not the end. 
God has more for your life. So do this. Follow Paul as he follows Jesus. Here's a real man demonstrating enduring devotion to Jesus in the midst of adversity. He's not blowing smoke. He's showing us how it's done. And remember, remember that your citizenship is in heaven. Does that mean that this life right now doesn't matter? No, just the opposite. It means that life absolutely matters. And that's why we can't waste a moment of it on things that are temporary, that will not last. We need to continue to try to move the ball on God's restorative mission. We're a part of it. He's called us to be partners with him. I work in the hospital now. I was a pastor for a long time, and now I work uh, in the hospital as a chaplain. I'm with people every day who are nearing the very end of their lives. I regularly have conversations with people who are deeply tired and wondering, do I keep this up or do I throw in the towel? How long do I press on? You know, I wonder how Joe Frazier's life would have changed if his trainer had waited 10 more seconds before throwing in the towel. I wonder how his life might have been different if he hadn't been the first one to quit. You know that Frazier couldn't bring himself to watch the tape of that fight for 30 years. Each of us will reach the point someday when our fight is over, when our race is run, and God will call us home. But that day is not today. You might feel like you've got nothing left to give, like you just can't keep going, like the adversity is just too strong, or you might be just telling you, well, it's not worth it. Press on. You might also be just seconds away from victory. Don't be the first to quit. Let's pray. Father, so grateful that you're here with us. May your Holy Spirit breathe that sustaining life into us. Teach us how to press on how to pursue that for which you have pursued us. May we, like Paul, follow you, serve you, press on with you until our final day, our final breath, when you call us home. Let us not grow weary in doing well, but let us with joy continue to run the race with you, that we may get a hold of you in a more deeper, more profound way than we ever have before. Amen.